Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. I went to the polls and I, I did something I've never done before. I walked to the polls and I'm not really sure whether that was intentional or not. I mean, I was going for my regular walk, and as I approached the area in my community where the voting takes place, the uh, the polls, I said to myself, well, why come back later? Let me just walk up this nefarious lane filled with every other kind of sign that you've ever imagined. And what I noticed, there was a lack of signs for the competitor in an election where I already knew who I was going to vote for. And I, I don't know if that was uh, something I should have taken more seriously or made note of, but I am just, uh, you know, it was interesting. Uh, the person I did vote for, I have on the line right now, John Brody was running for uh, the Coconut Creek Commission. Uh, I believe it's District D. Is that correct, John? That is absolutely correct. Well, you got my vote. <laughs> Hold on. Let me, let me move away from the crowd here. Hold on a second. Okay. Sorry. Right. That's okay. Yep. So I, I made it to the polls early and you got my vote. Oh, well, awesome. Thank you very much. It's been a very exciting morning for sure. Yeah. I don't know what poll station you're at, but uh, I was in the uh, the territory of the enemy. <laughs> and, um, okay. It was it was quite I'm a lot of right fun. Where you voted. Oh, okay. It was a lot of fun, though, because there were some diehard Brody supporters. There were more people with Brody shirts and, and signs than there were any other candidate. As a matter of fact, Becky Tooley was standing with some Brody people. It was amazing to see. So I'm, I'm hopeful that even in this uh, dark, dim Democrat stronghold, there may actually be some common sense and you will win. So, hey, what can I tell you? How you feeling? What are you seeing? I think really uh, it's been really positive uh, throughout the ele- the election process here, and it, this morning you just see everybody coming in, cheering, giving me thumbs up, and uh, it's been very positive. So uh, I'm kind of excited that we got the city uh, up out of bed and out here voting. It's you know it's I think it's going to have a great turnout for us. Yeah, and look, anytime um, you're willing to do the hard work and get out there, knock on doors, meet people, explain what you stand for and what's important to you, I believe people respond. I don't think that they are so wedded to parties anymore. They've all been, de- uh, you know, they've all been betrayed by their so-called parties, Democrats and Republicans alike. And now I think they're more concerned with like, well, what are you going to do for my community? So you had a winning message. You know, I'm, I'm really hopeful for you. Well, thank you. And then uh, at the end of the day, we can have a great celebration uh, and a victory party. So 
Let's hope so. In the meantime, let me just say this to everybody. Get out and vote in all of your municipalities. It doesn't matter if you have a horse in the race, so to speak, and you know a particular candidate. Um, it just matters that you exercise your constitutional right to determine what kind of government you have. You may lose or you may win, but if you don't vote, you will never know if that vote was the one that would have made the difference. John, good luck and keep me in the loop, all right? And Bo Brody. Bo Brody, amen. What can I tell you? I was listen. I I never walked to the polls before, but I I just felt like I wanted to see the get the pulse of the community. I had a conversation, an in, well, not a conversation. I had an exchange, an email exchange with a dear friend, you know, and it, and it's amazing because the dear friend was uh, you know challenging my. Um, my decision that, you know, I just really didn't want to uh, play with him anymore in the sand pile because he had just, uh, you know, he, he just seemed to be relishing too much. Um, you know, let me explain it to the audience somewhat um, carefully and clearly, all right? I believe in mimetics. I believe in the herd mentality. And I have watched the herd mentality in politics for decades, literally decades, I've been involved in campaigns where the herd mentality worked in our favor, and I've been involved in campaigns where the herd mentality worked in the favor of the uh, other side, the other party. And what ends up happening is people really don't like to be wrong, and people really don't like to not um, be on the winning side of whatever the issue is, except people like me. You see, people like me, we really could care less about being on the winning side. I, I've explained 100,000 million times to people on this radio station over the years. I have literally only voted for someone who won a presidential election one time. You know, uh, every other time the person I voted for, including the same person who I won with, uh, got defeated. And I don't take that lightly, but I also understand that when you stand on principles, it's like that scene out of the movie Gladiator, right? I mean, you know, I'm not a big Mel Gibson fan, but there's a, there's a point at which he just says, I'd rather die on my feet than, you know, than bow my head to the, to the so-called victors, even ahead of time. The other thing, of course, is that I've been watching politics in Florida for 33 years with a microscope, okay? I put it all under a microscope. I can tell you that, you know, 33 years ago, the first time I ever had an interview with one Debbie Wasserman Schultz, I pegged her. And at the time I was still, uh, you know, still a registered Democrat actually. And at the time I pegged her and said, this is the worst of the worst, the worst kind of politician, the worst kind of Democrat, the worst kind of everything. And I was right. I was right and I stood on that. Uh, the same way I felt about Bill Clinton when everybody said, oh, you got to support Bill Clinton. What are you talking about? And I said, no, I do not have to support Bill Clinton. I don't care what his odds are any more than I cared what McCain's odds were or Bob Dole's odds were. I don't vote for people because I think they can win. I vote for people because I think they should win. And even if they don't win, I'll stand by my vote. That's all. And, and you know, I, I guess I really, for most people, you know, this is not a job. You know, this is their, um, it might be their passion, 
you know, I got a lot of friends who are, have a lot of passion for politics and get very involved at the grassroots level, support candidates, uh, knock on doors, wear t-shirts, do all that good stuff. But I do this for a living, which means that I have to be willing to take a hit when the hit comes my way and be able to explain why it was perfectly acceptable for me to get hit. You know, I will not have any apologies to make for any of the candidates that, well, I have to take that back. I did once support a candidate who was a knucklehead and uh, I kind of knew he was a knucklehead. It was Ralph Nader, but I just didn't, couldn't find anybody else to vote for in that election. So I ended up voting for him. But with that rare exception, you know, I have voted for people who I had zero confidence in. Uh, including John McCain. And and I tell everybody all the time, I voted for John McCain, not because John McCain was at the top of the ticket, but because Sarah Palin was just below. And I thought she was extraordinary. Had met her in Alaska. I really was just so impressed with her. Um, she's like me. She's a fire starter and she's a money changer, table turner. Uh, you know, and I just, I thought, okay, well, maybe I could tolerate John McCain. He's kind of old and maybe he won't last the whole term. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking, but I did vote for, uh, for John McCain. Of course he didn't win. Of course he didn't win. I mean, think about it. Why would anybody in their right mind, including me, vote for the John McCains and the Bob Doles and all these other, you know, uh, uh, the Republican candidates, these these Republicans in name only or even Republicans uh, because they say they are? That's okay. I'm not a Republican. And I think people have a real tough time dealing with that. You know, I get invited to speak at all the Republican clubs. They never invite me to speak at Democrat clubs, Right because I'm a conservative and more Republicans line up with my conservative principles than certainly Democrats do. So, uh, you know, I find myself in bed with a lot of Republicans, but I am not a Republican. And I'll tell you why I'm not a Republican, because Republicans are more worried about how they uh, appear to the public, about how big, good a chance their candidate has of winning uh, how decent, how moral, how upstanding they are. That's all fine and dandy. But politics is a very, very, the, makes for strange bedfellows. That's all I'm going to tell you. And I have had one candidate in all my history that won an election. And then literally, because I stuck with that candidate, even when everybody told me I was crazy and he had no chance of winning, I stuck with that candidate. And you know what the payoff was for me? It was the same payoff for you. He fulfilled almost every promise he made. Couldn't fulfill them all because he had a Republican Party, the likes of uh, Ron DeSantis. That's why he couldn't fulfill all of his promises. But he tried. And he took all the slings and arrows that were really aimed at me and aimed at you. He was the bulwark in front of us. He stood up for our values. He stood up for Jerusalem being the capital of Israel. He made friends with all the people I wanted to be friendly with. And he, and he didn't hesitate to call out all the bad guys. And for that, I will uh, be e eternally grateful and eternally loyal because I believe he will do it again. Now, uh, you know, I said uh, earlier today to a friend, even if he doesn't, even if he didn't win, I will, I, I will, I'd rather go down with his ship than to stand on the deck of what I believe will be a Titanic for conservatives and even for the Republican Party forevermore. We will never see another person with an R after their name elected to the uh, national office, to the presidency, if, uh, if we don't run the only man who will fight 
tooth and nail to get a victory and who can stand up on any stage next to any uh, Trump light, because that's what all these candidates are turning out. Oh, well, we don't believe in the war. And, you know, they all sound like Trump light, right? Well, he can stand up there alongside of Trump lights, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I don't care how many there are and say, well, that's all nice. But I did that. Oh, well, I'm glad you agree with me because I did that. And, and that is a winning formula. And if you don't think it's a winning formula, you'll see how much pain people are going to be in by the next election. It's only just begun. If you think the uh, Silicon Valley Bank was, uh, you know, a, a superficial wound, you better start thinking again. This was a deep cut, and it really speaks to what's going on in Washington. And the only person who has a handle on how to stop it is not Ron DeSantis. It's not Vivek Ramaswamy, although he certainly made a great statement about it yesterday. It's not uh, Mike Pence. It's not Mike Pompeo. It's not any of these people. I don't even know who else is in this race, but whoever they will be, you know, uh, trust me, no matter what they say, they won't do it. And no matter what they say, he can say, I did it and I will do it again. And for me, you know, that deserves some uh, some sense of, of, of decency and loyalty. And the other thing that's fascinating to me is how everybody feels the only way they can rationalize telling me that I should not support Donald Trump is by telling me all these other people who don't support Donald Trump anymore. And the list is endless. It'll be this one and that one and the ambassador and the, and the, and the senator and the congressman and the RNC and the, this one and the, that one. And like the more of that that people throw at me, the harder I dig in my heels. Because those are the same people who gave all the bad advice to candidates who probably should have won second terms and didn't, like Alan West, just in case anybody was wondering. The same people advising Ron DeSantis right now are the same people who were advising Alan West. How many terms did Ron, uh, Alan West get to serve in Congress once he distanced himself from me? Yeah, exactly. So trust me, I don't take this lightly. I get on the air here every day and tell you how I think and how I feel. I'm not backing down. I'm not changing my mind. I, you know, let me tell you, whoever the candidate is that finally ends up with the Republican nomination will most likely get my vote, but it's not a guarantee unless it's Donald Trump. All right, let me uh, remind you to download the app, 850WFTL app. If you have it on your phone, you can get all the alerts. It might even uh, help you to figure out if you have a candidate to vote for in this election, I want to tell everybody you need to vote. If you have the app or you go to the website, 850WFTL.com, you can take part in all of our contests. We are giving away gift cards to Tulson Bole Fresh. We have uh, tickets to I Am He Said at the Duncan Theater, and you can't win them unless you're in it to win it. So go ahead, get the app or go to the website. I'll take a quick break. And I will be right back. So you can't even uh, you can't even make it up. If anybody out there should ask you, like you know, how did Joe Biden get elected? Um, you know, there really is only one answer, right? He he is a a, a a lifelong politician, and lifelong politicians uh, know all the tricks. They know how to play an audience. They know how to cheat you know, especially if they belong to the Democrat Party, but I'm not letting Republicans off the hook either. But here you have a president who really, you know, there's no question in anybody's mind, including the most diehard of Democrats, right, that Joe Biden is a lifelong politician, right? Uh, 
This is a guy who has literally been in Washington for four decades. And so he, he's a liar. He gets caught all the time lying. He makes multiple verbal mistakes and, and it goes on and on and on. And look, every politician wants to be able to relate to his audience, right? So if you're in a room full of firefighters, well, then, you know, you tell a story. Um, and, and then, you know, somehow you, you, you attempt to make yourself part of their, uh, their experience, right? And, and so what he did was, I, I had these terrible headaches. I was diagnosed with having a, well, anyway, they had to take the top of my head off a couple of times to see if I had a brain. He said that in front of a bunch of firefighters the other day. Clearly, parts of it were meant as a joke. He further explained that he had to be rushed to a hospital, but the usual travel options weren't available to him because of inclement weather. It was apparently his fire company from back home in Claymont, Delaware, who got Biden to the hospital in the middle of a snowstorm for a nine-hour operation and saved my life. Now, as crazy as all that sounds, the story has some truth. You know, when he wrote his book back in 2007, Promises to Keep, he, he explained that he was, in fact, rushed to an emergency surgery back in 1988 after passing out in a hotel room for five hours. The outlet, uh, the Delaware News Journal reported that he had suffered from a major brain aneurysm and had to have a microsurgical craniotomy to repair the damage. At best, the odds of success and life after the operation were 50-50. Of course, he did survive and amazingly didn't seem to have any problems picking up where he left off, which of course is what most people fear. Not so easy for Fetterman, right? There didn't seem to be any noticeable signs of diminishing mental or rhetorical skills. He didn't have that many to begin with. Of course, given the last couple of years and the insurmountable number of mistakes and gaffes he's made in that time, I'm not so sure we can still say the same thing. The only real question is whether or not the brain aneurysms of his past and the subsequent surgery are the reason for his mental decline. All jokes aside, like he clearly still has a brain, but just how much of it is working or how much of it was left in the operating room is debatable. And the fact that he just told the story of just how far gone his brain might actually be, might actually be should give us some very real concerns about the man who is supposedly leading our nation. I just guarantee you that when Biden said what he did that night, there wasn't much laughter in the place. Instead, everyone was holding their breath, wondering, did he really say that? I mean, I feel sorry for his poor staff members who must just roll their eyes, sink down in their chairs and, you know, have a complete palm to forehead moment. That's after they uh, remember to breathe again. So do you really have to wonder why he's the least popular president like ever? You know, might tell you, might tell you something, and and that's important. You know, much like you know, I have uh, I have enough time, I have enough trouble trying to explain to people how the electorate in America voted for this guy, without you know maintaining that there was some serious. Well, let me just say it. There was serious cheating that went on, not just the night of the election, because a lot of people like to tell me, oh, well, well, you can't run by that. I mean, he couldn't have won even if those districts. No, no, no. It started way before that. 
It started right after the first election when they started changing all the rules about how they were going to uh, count votes and how long people were going to be allowed to vote. And then came COVID and they saw their opportunity. And it now was all about uh, absentee ballots and people voting, you know, and having ballot harvesting going on. So I'll tell you how he won. He won because the Democrats are really great at uh, manipulating the system. That's just the bottom line. He certainly didn't win because people felt confident in his ability to lead the nation. I don't think anybody in their right mind would claim that. I know I certainly wouldn't. You know, I, I you know, I still have enough problem trying to understand how he won in, even with cheating because he's just such a pathetic candidate that you can't you can't even wrap your mind around it sometimes. A candidate, he's a pathetic president. How about that? That's the more scary part. Uh, I, I know that some of you were listening yesterday when I had Eric Glazier on and we were talking about, uh, you know, some of the problems that condo uh, associations are going to be facing with all of this uh, legislation and with this lack of protection for them. Uh, tomorrow I will have Lisa Miller on and she is going to, uh, well, she's going to tell us and teach us all about the insurance and reinsurance markets and why we need to get busy with our legislators and find uh, them, hold them accountable. That's all. Because these are the things that really affect our lives on a day-to-day basis. Not many of you had money in the Silicon Valley Bank, but trust me, it's not just the Silicon Valley Bank that's going to be affected by this. You know, one of the things, um, that that bothers me when I look at uh, what the government has already decided to do on behalf of a single bank is that, you know, they're never satisfied with just doing one thing. Government loves power and the more power they can assume, the happier they are. And if they can use the failure of this bank to properly safeguard the money of its investors, then they will use it and they will challenge all other uh, banks to, uh, you know, whatever they have to do, uh, provide more reserve funds, and they will drive a lot of banks out of business. And if you don't think it's going to affect you, maybe you're with one of the big banks who are too big to fail, the uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and the Bank of America and, uh, and all these other large-scale banks who have a cushion that they'll be able to lean on. But it's every credit union, every regional bank that's going to be put to the test now. And if you don't think there's also a long-term trickle-down effect on the economy, even by a single bank failure or double bank, signature bank as well, if you don't think it trickles down to the, uh, to the innovation in the tech sector, to the ability to move goods around the country, to the energy sector, then you are naive. I'm re-listening on my Audible to uh, a, a book by Thomas Sowell. Um, it's basically a, a primer on how economies work, on how free economies work, on how um, socialist economies work, on how communist economies work, on how fascist economies work, but mostly on how the free market really is the best answer for all these things. Once government starts interfering in the free market, which is exactly what's about to happen, they're going to guarantee deposits uh, above $250,000, and then they're telling you, but don't worry, the banks are going to pay for it. If they ruin the banks, the banks aren't going to pay for it. You are. And even if the banks supposedly pay for it, you'll be paying for it. 
You'll be paying for it one way or another. There are no free rides. Government can't do anything to alleviate the pain of what's about to happen except by taking money away from you. There's no, they, they, I know they like to print money and all the rest of it, but they literally first look into your pockets. And if they, what they can't steal from you, then they will, uh, you know, uh, they'll create. And if you're not worried yet about digital currencies and all of these, you know, stories about Biden bucks and how they're going to track and all the rest of it, then maybe you really are dead from the neck up and there's nothing I can do for you, you know. But if you're not, then keep an open mind because I see the beginning of a cataclysmic change in financial, uh, in the finances and you better be protected. You know, I talk about Jason Labor now, you know, he's come on board as one of my very, very special sponsors. And I'm telling you, you better be prepared and you better safeguard all of your investments because the poop is about to hit the fan and you need to have qualified people handling what money you have put away and what money you plan on putting away. Yep. Just just threw that in as a little bit of an extra because I'm convinced that uh, we're in for some deep, hard pain. Anyway, let me take a break. I'll be coming back with Mike Termat. He is the libertarian candidate for the presidency and he's been on my show before. He's an interesting fella. And I'm dying to hear what he has to say about why people should consider voting for the libertarian candidate in these upcoming elections. Stay right where you are. All right. Welcome back. And uh, as promised, I have the libertarian candidate for the presidency on the line, Mike Termat. I've had him as a guest before, and he always wants to talk about what he wants to talk about. He's a former police officer, and he loves talking about police uh, reform. But Mike, how do we not talk yeah. about a gold new deal when the country is reeling with the uh, notification that uh, the Silicon Valley Bank um, not only mismanaged money, but that the government's going to have to bail them out, and they're saying it's not a bailout? Like I thought you'd want to weigh in on that, don't you? I do. I appreciate that. I was a financial economist for uh, over two decades before becoming a police officer and spending so much time talking about criminal justice reform. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think it's terrible the way the government is handling this situation. I wish they were not bailing out the uninsured depositors at all. Right. Uh, I especially wish they weren't doing so and, and lying about the extent to which it's a, it's a bailout. It absolutely is. And, of course, as, as you and your listeners know, Joyce, when we bail out institutions like this, it really sows the seeds of future bailouts. You know, people come to expect that their deposits are going to be bailed out, even though they're huge and uninsured. And, and that's what causes banks to take needless risks in the first place. Right. And the libertarian policy, uh, dis, you know, the, the way that they would uh, better handle our economic system is very interesting to me because what it says is if you had a, uh, if you, instead of having discretionary policy, monetary policy, you would replace it with a constitutionally fixed rate of growth for the entire money supply and that states would have a lot more control over what went on. Explain that to people because obviously, you know, a lot of my listeners are on Social Security and that sounds scary to them. I can appreciate that. With regard to Social Security, we wouldn't change anything for already retired, right? Uh, regarding Social Security, we would give the youngsters 
uh, a way to opt out of Social Security and create their own savings accounts and prepare for their retirement in a way that would be, you know, more suitable for them. Uh, so we would create an option for them to get out of uh, that system, which, as you know, is just merely a Ponzi scheme. With regard to monetary policy, you're absolutely right. Uh, I would get rid of the Federal Reserve System lock, stock, and barrel in 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 piecemeal fashion, starting with, as you put your finger on it, stopping this uh, idea that they should have complete discretion over the creation of money and subject our monetary policy to a rules-based system. Uh, the, the, the rule that I like best is the Milton Friedman idea of having money stock increase by a fixed growth rate every year so it would be predictable to the extent to which you would see any uh, inflation or deflation, you would know that it was not because of the Federal Reserve screwing around with money supply. You would know it was because of something else going on in the economy. And, of course, that pricing signal is very, very important. So this is a way that we would be able to address reducing inflation, keeping it under control, and taking it away from the Federal Reserve System. As as you may know, the Fed's history of having so much discretion over monetary policy has been a big contributing factor to the boom-bust cycle itself. The, The reason that we thought we were giving discretion to the Fed many, many decades ago was to help address these boom-bust cycles, but it just turns out they they can't do it. It's just too difficult. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they have inadvertently contributed to several uh, depression cycles, and we need to get out of that. Mm -hmm. Now, you you do see the 50 states as a sovereign in, in the in in terms of some monetary policy, in terms of a lot of other policies. So how would would they opt in or opt out? How would this work? Uh, The the way that we like to approach it is, of course, to decentralize power as much as possible. You're right. We call the platform that we're running on the Gold New Deal because we believe we need a completely different relationship with our federal government than what we've had in the past. Mm -hmm. We would push... Uh, as much power as possible down to the state. Uh, If it were up to me, I would create an option uh, through a constitutional amendment that would allow states to opt out of federal supremacy, meaning uh, to the extent to which there is conflict between state law and federal law, states would be able to resolve those conflicts themselves. Uh, They would be able to uh, resolve those conflicts in state court instead of the federal Supreme Court. Uh, in, in effect, this would give them the option of nullifying federal law that was in conflict with state law and get themselves out from under a lot of bad federal regulation, uh, a lot of uh, bad federal agencies, uh, a lot of uh, uh, court orders that don't make sense for a particular state. It would give each state an ability to follow its own political future and chart its own path. And we believe that that is the way that democracy should work. I think it's, you know, much more in line with what the founders of the Constitution had in mind. Uh, Folks have teased me, Joyce, about, well, couldn't we just pass the Tenth Amendment over again and say this time we mean it? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, of course, we could do that. uh, But. 
we passed the Tenth Amendment once that was supposed to make clear that states had the authority to, to chart their own futures. The federal government has walked all over that, so it's time to take the bull by the horns and give states uh, more authority in a really explicit fashion. So you would eliminate the IRS, I hope, because that's the one thing that I think I agree with every libertarian politician about, and instead yeah. have individual state governments uh, give money to the federal government for obviously our national de- defense, period. <laughs> you know, they're really maybe roads, that's but right. that's it. <laughs> that's right. As a matter of fact, I see it as a two-step process. One is you you do have to get rid of the IRS. I don't like the idea that there's a direct relationship between the federal government and individuals. It really ought to go through the state house to the extent to which the federal government needs money. As as any of your listeners who have been audited by the IRS know, uh, it's not a pleasant experience. I have been through it myself. Uh, dealing with the IRS is problematic. Uh, just be, Not only are the rules opaque and difficult to work with, but the IRS is one of the most powerful police organizations in the world. They have their own courts. You are literally guilty until pres- you are you are presumed guilty until proven innocent in an IRS tax co- uh, court. It's a really hellacious experience, and states are much better able to stand up to the federal government and represent us in a fashion that will make sense not only in terms of uh, collecting taxes and making the payments and following the rules, but also in terms of holding the government accountable, keeping the federal uh, government from spending too much money. And, of course, the other part of the puzzle is uh, just exactly that, holding the federal expenditure level down. You know, we spend so much money uh, we don't have a way of holding uh, the federal government accountable except through Congress, and that obviously has not worked well the last few right. decades. Right. We need a new approach. Yeah, we do. And I think one of the other interesting platforms that you are running on is the fact that uh, these the idea that a government um, can declare war without the consent of the people being governed is insane to me. And, and that is exactly what we're seeing again. And then they do it in all these backhanded ways. Like, we'll just send weapons. And we all know you can't send weapons and not become a participant in any given war. And it's a lot of my money being sent to right now to the Ukraine. And, I, you know, maybe it's just me, but I'm looking at news from around the globe and they're not winning. It doesn't matter how much money or, or, or weapons we send to the Ukraine. That's a lost cause. And yet my government seems compelled to keep it up. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, and to be honest, uh, even if it were not a lost cause, I don't agree that it's in the national interest to be sending so much money. By the way, we haven't just sent money. It is true that we have sent uh, north of $110 billion worth of product over there in cash. But we also have, as many of your listeners know, uh, at last count, nearly 1,000 troops, American troops, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, They are... Uh, hopefully not on the front line. They're there in training capacities. They're there as contractors. Uh, they're there to make sure that 
the people who are receiving the weapons receive the right ones and are trained on them. And, and I understand that. But uh, to your point, this idea of the United States, again, being at war uh, is absolutely intolerable from the standpoint of representing our basic ethics. I just feel like it's a violation of our dignity for the government to drag us into another war completely in violation with how we as individuals feel. And and make no mistake, to your point, Joyce, we are at war. This is no longer merely a proxy war. The, the, the president of the United States was over there personally. We have troops over there. We are manufacturing at this point weapons specifically for Ukraine. We're not just sending them, you know, old uh, jeeps that are left over from the 1970s and sitting behind the uh, warehouse. We're manufacturing stuff specifically for them. This is the same attitude that we would take if we were at war ourselves. And for this reason, I believe it's most accurately characterized as being exactly that. The United mm-hmm. States is at war. Yeah. And look, um, I, I, I'm less of a, of a libertarian in that regard. I do think there are reasons uh, to, to fight wars. But, um, you know, I, I just see this as one of these endless self-licking ice cream cones. At this point, the only people who are benefiting from it are the munition suppliers and uh, certainly not the people of the Ukraine who are, continue to die in, in vile uh, weapons, by vile weapons, some of whom probably got into the hands of the Russians because we left them in Afghanistan. But that's a whole other story. And finally, no, I agree with you. It's a, it's a terrible thing. Uh, but you know, Joyce, whether you and I agree without every single military intervention that the government undertakes, I, I hope that most folks that are listening to our conversation would agree that we need to make it more difficult for the United States to go to war. As it stands now, the president can unilaterally make this decision. Congress rarely gets in the way. Were it up to me, uh, I would require a declaration of war, a formal uh, declaration of war, signed off on by the Congress every time the president wants to intervene militarily anywhere in the world. And I would go one step uh, further. I would make that declaration subject to the approval of the state. I believe that, you know, you are right. There are times when we need to defend our interests. But I believe that we have been uh, a little willy-nilly in how we make this decision. I think that we need to slow it down, uh, make it more methodical, and make it more difficult. Obviously, we need to allow the commander-in-chief uh, in in a case of emergency to respond, you know, at a moment's notice. But that is not the case in uh, Ukraine, for example. No, no, it hasn't been the case in a lot of the last uh, 40 years. But uh, if you want more information about Mike, go to Mike Termat. It's M-I-K-E-T-E-R-M-A-A-T dot com. Mike Termat dot com. He is the libertarian candidate running for the presidency. Mike, always a pleasure. I I will have you back and we'll talk about police reform and we'll talk about term limits, two other subjects where um, we have some agreement and some disagreement. Thanks for coming on today. I appreciate that, Joyce. Thanks for your time. 
All right. Thank you. All right. That does it for that interview. We're going to take a final break before I come back and wrap up this show. Please remember, we got one o'clock, Dan Bongino at four o'clock, Ben Shapiro at six o'clock, the WPTV News, Joe Paggs, uh, Lars Larson. And then, of course, in the morning, the morning crew will be back here with the morning South Florida morning show. I still have one segment left. Stay right where you are. So I'll tell you where Mike Termat, the libertarian candidate, and I really agree is states' rights. We really do. I mean, I am, I am seriously convinced that the closer you are to the governing body, the more responsive that governing body will be to you. And that was what the founding fathers actually wanted. So in that way, I think I might be pretty libertarian when you get right down to it. I just don't believe that we should have you know, everybody should be using drugs and everybody, prostitution should be legal and that we don't have any um, moral parameters by which we expect everyone to live, you know. Nah. See, that's the part where libertarians lose me every time. And he's also a former police officer who's very big on police reform. And uh, I'll have him back on and we'll talk about that because it's really a very, uh, it's a very, very different, perspective than anyone that I've ever uh, participated or, or, or understood, really. So, But I will have that back. A lot of other stuff uh, that's going to be coming, you know, the, the um, and, and I love, I never heard him say that before, but I love the fact that he said that lower courts should be handling a lot of these controversies instead of them going to the Supreme Court. And it's not that I don't think there might be a place for a federal court, a Supreme Court, to reign over, um, you know, when individual states go rogue, you know, or individual um, municipalities go rogue, or even when citizens go rogue or businesses go rogue, I think there'd be a place for the Supreme Court. But for the most part, if you had, uh, you know, closer to the actual aggrieved courts, you would find that people, first and foremost, would have better cases to present than you see coming to the Supreme Court. And I, I can tell you this, having been there and watched um, my friend Fane Lo, uh, Lozman present his case, when you know what you're talking about and you're able to present a very you know coherent case, you should be able to win at any level. You shouldn't have to go all the way to the Supreme Court to do that. What ends up happening is you have these political arms of courts in states and and even in smaller in counties and in in municipalities that just go rogue, and then you can go to the Supreme Court. But for the most part, you know, we be running to the Supreme Court over everything every few minutes, and like this, another court never gets to anything. They they're about to upend one of the most controversial precedents that was set in 2023, thanks to the Cause of Action Institute, which has taken on the case of the New Jersey fisherman who federal regulators are targeting with an unlawful fee scheme that would force them to surrender 20% of their pay to mandated third-party monitors. You know, this is fascinating stuff. This is, you know, the Chevron decision may be upended by, by the Supreme Court with this Loper Bright versus Raimondo case. You know, the future of fishermen is in the hands of the court. So I'm going to bring an expert on about that, Eric Bolander, who's a cause of action attorney, or maybe Ryan Mulvey, another one of them, um, to talk about this. You know, I have friends who, who have homes in Maine and who have been part of the fisher, fishing industry or the lobster and 
uh, clams and all the rest of it is seafood industry. And these people are struggling right now. And a lot of it is because of really bad decisions that have been made. And some of them right there at the Supreme Court, you know. So uh, listen, I'll bring somebody on to talk about that. There's so much to talk about. There's no shortage of things to talk about. And we're still, what, nine months out from an election? I can't even imagine how heated up this is going to get in the summer. But hey, one thing I can tell you for sure is I'll be right here talking about all of these things, not just the things that everybody else is talking about. I have, you know, I, I'm going to talk about the fact that, uh, you know, you got that stupid Whitmer, that Michigan governor who admitted this over the weekend, eh, we probably imposed more uh, restrictions during COVID-19 than were actually needed. Really? So who's going to hold her accountable for those executive orders that didn't let people buy seeds and plants so that they could grow their own fruits and vegetables? Just asking. I saw her with uh, Chris Wallace on a little outtake. I guess she was on CNN's show with Chris Wallace on the weekend. Asked about those lockdown policies. Eh, Some of them might have been over the top. You think? Anyway, I thank you for your time this time until next time. My plan is to be back here tomorrow at noon. If it be his will and he delays his coming, what lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. God bless you and God bless the United States of America. I'll see you all tomorrow. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.